Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. This is our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. So this week's exchange is with Andy Horsfield, who's one of the founders of Global Underground. For many people getting into dance music in the mid to late 90s, Global Underground will still hold a very special place in their heart. This mix CD series became an iconic brand that pushed the idea of DJs as superstars. In putting the series together, Horsfield was traveling the world and working with some of the biggest DJs on the planet. But he also wound up weathering a monumental storm when the bottom eventually fell out of the physical music market. Global Underground is now an expansive operation that releases original music and has multiple different compilation series. But as Horsfield explains here, in reaching this year's 20th anniversary, it's been an exciting but difficult journey. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Global Underground's Andy Horsfield is up next. So I mentioned to a few people that we were going to have this discussion today and among some RA staff members, admittedly some of the the older members of the team, uh, the response was something along the lines of, oh wow, GU, legendary, oh my God, I can't believe it. You know, it was really like uh, evocative uh, to them. Um, I was wondering, do you still get that response quite a lot when people kind of uh, know what you're involved with or, or what you've done? I do, and and GU does, because the one thing I've learned over the last 20 years is that how much music punctuates people's lives. So depending on what your entry point with Global was, whether it was in 1996 when we started with the late, great Tony DeVitt, or whether it was, you know, two years ago with the Solomon record or the Carl Cox record four years ago, it might have been your, your cousin or your brother or whatever passed you down some CDs or gave you a file and you listened to it, and different people have different entry points to Global. But... One thing's for sure, because we've been around so long, and I, I like to think, you know, we've we've done some really quality releases over those years, is that that resonates with people. The other thing I've learned about over the years about, you know, brands and proper record labels is quality and consistency. You know, if you do good shit over and over again, you'll build a loyal following. You know, when I used to buy vinyl back in the day with labels like Gorilla and Strictly Rhythm and things like this, every, you could literally go and buy a Gorilla record blind or a Strictly Rhythm Red record, it was always quality. It'd always be a mix on there that was really, really good, and it'd be worth your 4.99 import or 6.99 or whatever a vinyl was back in the day. So yeah, we do get that response a lot. I mean, would you say that um, you use the word loyal there? Would you kind of characterize the GU following or followers as uh, as loyal? Yeah, extremely loyal. I mean, we're lucky again that you know we put quality releases out over the years and people are very comfortable with still buying our music which freaks people out you know 65% of our sales are still physical which just surprises a lot of people you know but yeah our, you know, our followers our fans you know our consumers whatever you want to call them they've been extremely loyal and 
I mean, we get sent stuff on social media all the time, and people literally have bought everything we've done. Everything. You know, they've got bigger collections than, than I have. You know, we've got this photo exhibition, which is starting soon, and we've been trying to scrap it around, trying to find original physical copies of everything we've done. And between everybody that works for me, we don't have everything, but fans have those. So, yeah, I would say definitely very, very loyal. We're lucky like that. Uh, so you mentioned the photo exhibition there. You're kind of alluding to uh, an element of the anniversary celebrations. Yeah. So the label is turning 20. You've got a huge three CD compilation. You've got photo book exhibitions and parties. Tell us what the overall aim was on your side uh, for the celebrations. Starting with the album, it was very important for me, obviously, to look back at what we've done over the last 20 years. But it was also important for me to look forward. Two of the three discs are in the the 20-year album are retrospective, you know, best tracks from the albums and producers that we've worked with over the last 20 years. But then we also um, hunted out 10 who we consider some of the best emerging artists that have come through. You know, we've got Denny on there, Just Her on there, Annie on there, Dale Middleton or, you know, Havishman, all these guys. So we put an unmixed disc together with these people because it was very, very important for me, obviously, to celebrate what we've done for 20 years, but also to support emerging artists and look forward, you know, with the 10 who we consider, you know, amazing producers. What was it like picking the old tracks? It was very, very difficult, really difficult. We did an album at 10 years and we kind of we covered a lot of the music then. Uh, from the early part of Global. So we've still dipped into some of the tracks from that sort of 96 to 2006 era, but a lot from further on. It was extremely, extremely difficult because there's just so much, so much great music, you know, and it's just like, how do you... Uh, and we didn't want to use so much that it sounded like Jive Bunny and it didn't want it to be overly edited, you know, but it still wanted to have enough tracks on there and enough peaks and lows and troughs. So it's a, a bit of a journey on both discs. So, yeah, it was difficult, but we managed to get there. So, so let's wind the clock back a couple of decades. It's 1996. Uh, you're presumably heavily involved and interested in dance music and, uh, and club culture. What are you doing in the lead up to the first mix? Paint a bit of a picture for us. I used to be a photographer and James, who I used to work with, he worked in fashion. And, you know, we've both been in and out of club culture for like four or five years, you know. And we knew a lot of the DJs like, you know, Paul Oakenfold and Sasha and all these guys. We got to know them really, really well. And um, How did that happen? James and I used to do a lot of club merchandising. So we, you know, everything from T-shirts to tapes, all sorts of stuff. You know, I knew Dave Beer at Back to Basics, for instance, who introduced me to Paul Oakenfold. We knew the guys at Up Your Ronson who introduced me to Sasha, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, these guys were really popular then 20 years ago, but then the careers just, you know, took off, particularly in America and things. So we kind of, James and I thought, you know, because we didn't have a club night in the same way that Cream had, Renaissance had, Ministry of Sound had their own club. So these guys that were doing compilations had something very solid to build their releases on. Did they all have compilation series at that point? 96, yeah, definitely Renaissance, Ministry, Cream. Yeah, they all did, yeah. Those people like Fantasia around at the time and things. So because we didn't have a club night, we really needed something very, very strong. And it, it was just glaringly obvious to us that the DJs were the superstars and the very epicentre of our scene. And they were just starting to travel, you know, like Oki was going to South America, Sasha was in Australia too, and da, 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 da. And I always used to look at these rock albums from the 70s and stuff, you know, so-and-so, like Roxy Music Live in Paris and things like that. And it was a great concept, you know, it was, a night, it was capturing a night, documenting an individual night in time and capturing it on an album format and, you know, releasing it. And at the time, you know, if you, you picked up a Ministry of Sound annual back then, it was Ministry of Sound, the logo was huge, and then it was mixed by Pete Tong and Boy George, very small. 
and they were told what to play. They virtually told what to mix and how to mix it, and it was a very controlled environment. And I just thought it was wrong that all these compilations were coming out and they were very structured and they didn't really represent DJs in the cultural environment that they were in. So we racked our brains and tried. We thought, you know, we've got to we've got to do something that's better than everybody else. And I think, you know, when you're in that scenario, it's always it's always, always drives creativity because if you're the underdog, you want to compete in a, in in an environment, you've got to bring your A game. You've got to be better than everybody else. So we just came up with this idea, and we just could not believe that anybody hadn't done the concept, you know. And there was a band, recording band around at the time called Trans Global Underground. And we were really worried because the names were very similar, they were quite big. But we sort of forged ahead. I met Tony DeVette, he was playing at a friend's club in Newcastle, uh, told him about the concept, and he said, you know, I've got this gig coming up in Tel Aviv, why don't we do it? And he's, he's the loveliest, sweetest guy. Because when we first started Global, the idea was just to basically work with the very best across every single genre. So be it hard house, be it trance was going to be okay. Drum and bass would have been you know, Fabio and Groove Rider or whatever, or LTJ Buckham at the time. Techno would have been Carl Cox, you know, house would have been Danny Tanaglia, you know, all, a lot of people we ended up working with, but it was going to be a lot broader than Global ended I up see, being, right. you know. So we started with Tony agreed to do it. And then I met Nick Warren at Cream and asked him and he, he loved the concept as well. And then we took a very young Ben Turner to uh, Prague with us with uh, Nick Warren to do the second album. And then it just spurned on from there, really. And the concept took off and the DJs loved it, of course, because they're being represented properly. And the names were big on the cover and, you know, we employed really, really good photographers and it just sort of gelled with it, gelled with the fans because it's a very real reflection of their culture that they understood. And it gelled with the DJs because it was a great marketing tool and it reflected them as artists, et cetera, et cetera. Because before that, they were almost like a byword, you know, like a small bit of type sure, on the cover, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So. Can you define the concept for us? You've, you've kind of mentioned various like strands of it, but like what was the early directive or how are you pitching it to people? Well, really, we're just we're almost like a documentary team, like an audio documentary team. But obviously we took a, you know, took a photographer now, we take a film crew as well, took a journalist, you know, Don Phillips, editor of Mix Mag at the time, notoriously done, you know, all the sleeve notes, most of the sleeve notes for the City albums. So what we just tried to do was almost like jet in. There used to be a TV show in the 90s called Rough Guides, and they used to fly into a city like Barcelona, unpack their bags, take a film crew, whip around the, the city and try and capture the city in all this videotape. It was almost like that, but we were a bit more hardcore about it because obviously we'd turn up and we'd party and, you know, we'd drink all night and party all night and the DJ would play and we'd just try and capture it all, you know, in audio and also in photographs, you know. And we we start to go to these weird places. Like first one was obviously Tel Aviv, you know, not necessarily known as a clubbing hotspot, but was. Prague, you know, nobody's really going to these places back then. And then South America and, and then some very obvious choices like New York and Ibiza and stuff along the years. But we've always gone to these weird places like Reykjavik and so because invariably the DJs picked the city. So if a DJ's played in the city, like Nick had played in Reykjavik, he came back, it's the next album I want to do it in Reykjavik because do, 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 it's an amazing scene. Do you remember much about the first recording? Uh, not a lot. First no, trip. no, it was, it, was a bit, it was a bit messy, to be honest. I remember we got uh, a little bit, yeah, a little bit drunk on the beach and uh, yeah. It was, it was pretty messy, but yeah, it was a good trip. I actually wanted to talk about Tony DeVitt because um, I think for people of a certain generation, a certain age, you know, who's like very much one of the, uh, you know, if the term superstar DJ hadn't been coined by that point, he was certainly one of the biggest DJs Absolutely. in the world. I think for me, the generation who came next weren't necessarily so aware of his work. You know, we were talking about like one of the very biggest. 
Could you just tell us a little bit about uh, him, about his work and why he was uh, as popular as he was? He was a phenomenal DJ and you had to see him to believe it. You know, he used to do 11, 12 hour sets at Trade, you know. Uh, can you explain what uh, Trade is? Trade, so Trade know. used to be in Turnmills, which was in uh, Farringdon. It was a gay club uh, that ran on, I think it was a Sunday, went on after hours. Tony was a resident DJ there and he played, you know, literally technically perfect sets for 10, 11, 12 hours. You, you can't explain it to, you know, to DJs maybe now that everything's mixed on tractor and mixed in key and this, that and the other. You know, mixing from vinyl for like 12 hours perfectly, beat, beat perfect, audio levels, mixing levels perfect. It requires an intense amount of concentration. And also the music that he was getting, the acetates he was getting a hold of, these tracks that nobody else has had. A lot of the productions he was making himself, he's, you know, doing re-edits and then getting cut onto acetates and playing them in the club. So he was, he was very much that defining moment, but he was he's so not a star DJ. He's such a humble, kind, nice guy, you know? It wasn't like he was he was pushing himself forward as like a superstar DJ. He was, very, he was quite shy about the fact. He's very aware as his success grew, you know? But he was just, yeah, just the humblest, sweetest guy, you know? What sort of moment was uh, Hard House having as a genre then? And um, were people thinking of him as a Hard House DJ at that point in time? Yeah, no, he's definitely considered a Hard House DJ, but he was the biggest DJ in Britain at the time and huge internationally as well. You know, when he did the second record for us, which was in uh, Tokyo at the Liquid Rooms, it's just absolutely enormous. You know, I remember it was uh, Tokyo Fashion Week when we did that party and just the sweetest, loveliest guy, you know, and sadly... He died a year or so after that, you know, from complications uh, from HIV. And it was just, it was just, yeah, it was a really, really low point yeah, for all of us. Yeah, it was a big loss. Yeah, yeah. You guys got five compilations under your belt in this uh, live recording format. That's yeah. right. And then you sh uh, shifted things a little bit. Yeah, it just became complicated. I mean, the original live recordings were just, yeah, they were just problematic, you know. So then we just, all, all the records moving forward from that, were based, you know, sometimes, you know, DJs would record them, then they'd re-edit them and then they'd present them later. You know, it was up to them. We're pretty flexible about that. But Yeah, yeah I was going to ask, what was the uh, typical process for, for putting together uh, one of the mixes at that point? Like, how would the project be initiated? You know, what would be the steps? Take Tony's record, for instance. He gave me a list of about 50 or 60 tracks before we went to Tel Aviv, which we cleared, and then he basically played from that box. That was his record, you know. So that's pretty much the process that we used. But... You know, as compilations grew and then record labels, you know, the amount of advances that they required increased, increased, increased. It just became quite a torturous process. <laughs> That's why we kind of switched to just like the regular format where DJs could compile the albums afterwards if they chose or use parts of live recordings and combine them. And Oh, they whatever. would do that, Yeah, really? they would do yeah. whatever. I mean, I always left them flexibility to work in whatever way they felt. You know? Yeah, I see. So it could be a set inspired by the set Absolutely. or it could yeah, be yeah, yeah. a set yeah, with yeah, part yeah, of the set. Yeah, yeah. It's always down there because there's one thing we've always done at Global is always give DJs complete flexibility about, you know, how they put albums together. You know, I've never, ever, you know, quite often, you know, an, an artist will say, you know, I'm thinking this, I'm thinking that, and, 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 and we'll talk about it, you know, over and over. But it's never like you must do this, you must do that. You know, I've had DJs send rough mixes through to me for a feedback it's happened a few times not not as much as you would think i've had one dj sent an album and it was the wrong way around for us so we suggested it and he was fine so cd1 became cd2 and cd2 oh, okay. became cd1 yeah, yeah, yeah very famous album won't tell you which one it is but and he was totally cool with it but other than that we just don't dabble i mean that's a whole thing it's like you're working with the very best in the world 
I'm not a DJ. I understand music. I love music, but I'm not about to start criticizing somebody that does this day in, day out, you know, telling them how, what to play, you know. So over the first 20 releases, you built up something that looked from the outside to be uh, resembling a roster. What would this group of DJs kind of represent in your mind? The very best, you know, I mean, we've, I think a lot of people sort of associate global working with the biggest DJs in the world, and we do, but I prefer to think we work with the best. And we also have this thing, and I don't know how obvious it is to, to, to our fans and to consumers, but we work with artists. So for me, our goal or my job running global is to put timeless mixes together. You know, so you go back and listen to Danny Tanaglia's Athens album or Sasha's Ibiza album that was from 99. They're timeless. They really are. They sound fresh now as, as they did. So quite often there's very obvious club choices. Like there's a lot of people around at the minute who have checked out and the brilliant club DJs. Listen to the mixes, the good club mixes. Do I want to listen to that in 15 years? I'm not sure. You know, but it fits the time now and it's fine, you know, for a stream or, you know, a, a podcast or whatever. And it's cool, put it on the car, whatever, and it's entertainment. But for me, we've always worked with artists. And, you know, if you look at people like uh, Sasha and Deep Dish and Nick Warren with Way Out West and James Lavelle with Uncle and, you know, Danny Tanagan who's recording. And yeah, it's very obvious because a lot of DJs now produce or they use ghost producers and da 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 da, da. But the people we've always worked with are genuinely artists and producers themselves and they sit in studios like this for weeks on end doing remixes and they understand the structure of music and they understand what it takes to put a timeless mix together that people want to listen to at home or in the car i see and so, that's the ethos of global so you're almost saying that the uh the timeless quality and yeah i do agree with you that these these mixes have stood the test of time but you're saying that um that stems from the artists themselves yeah, the, and the, the care and the yeah, attention the care, that they yeah. were putting into it and then also, because we ramped up fairly quickly, you know, I mean, obviously we started with Tony, then Nick Warren, and then Paul Oakenfold was was a big deal. You know, Paul's somebody I knew before uh, we started Global. So Paul was a big deal because he, he was very, very, and he still is highly selective about who he works with. So once Paul kind of worked for us, and then I think I probably even a bigger step than that was Danny Tanaglia because he didn't do mix albums and it took a lot to get him to do it. And he did the Athens album. It's a timeless album. Is it just a case of uh, persistence? persistence. persistence. Yeah, he was in yeah. New York. I mean, luckily we had mutual friends, but it required a lot of phone calls and stuff. And he had, he wanted to feel comfortable with us. And I got that, you know, I mean, we should probably have just jumped on a plane and gone to New York, you know, but luckily we managed to do it all over the phone and he, he loved the concept and he wanted to do it. And yeah, it's, it's definitely... Definitely one of my favourite albums that we've put out, you know. You mentioned the initial intention being to uh, kind of have the best DJs in all genres. I wanted to kind of throw this back to you and say, uh, if someone said to you that uh, at its core, uh, the GU series is a progressive house series, mm -hmm. would you disagree with that? Or how would you kind of respond? Because I, I think, I guess I'm asking because... In terms of the genres covered, I think for many people, uh, Progressive House would be the first one that would come to mind. I mean, I think it's very fair to say we'll put out more Progressive House albums. It's a point of phrase that Don Phillips created and he hates, everybody hates, but it is, you know, I know everybody knows what you're talking about, you're talking about Progressive House. We'll put out more Progressive House albums than any other genre, correct, absolutely. If you actually look at the roster of DJs we work with, it's not actually true, it's just that, in terms of the, the number of different types of DJs we work with, 
you know, we've done a lot of records with Nick Warren, which, you know, some have been chill out, but a lot of them have been progressive. Sasha obviously got sidled with that. John D. Greed did as well. But then, you know, you've got Paul Oakenfold in trance and like say you've got House for Danny Tanaglia, you've got Darren Emerson, you know, playing techno, you've got James Lavelle doing his breaks and eclectic kind of thing. You know, you've got Solomon, you've got Carl Cox, you've, you know, you've got all these other DJs, you know, that aren't necessarily progressive. But yeah, I, obviously I'm aware that we put a lot of progressive house albums out. But we've also, you know, on our other series, things like After Hours, which are like weird eclectic albums and Electric Calm, which is chill out. And it's not pro- it's not progressive at all, you know. You know, we've got a dozen odd artist albums. We've released everything from Uncle, you know, to Rogue Audio. And it's just, or Low Step and things like that. It's definitely not progressive. But I could understand why everybody got oh, progressive because those headline records, some of the ones that sold the vast vo- volumes that it did were big progressive house yeah, albums. Yeah, yeah, so sure. yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with the term, but. I mean, where do you think that line goes from the sort of uh, heyday, the famous heyday in the late nineties with people like Sasha and Digweed and then into the two thousands and beyond? Like who do you think is part of that lineage these days? Do you know, do you think there is a, a modern progressive house scene melodic tracks have made a huge comeback in the last two yeah, years yeah. you know labels like Suara and things like this it's very much kind of in vogue you know you see a lot of kind of cool techno djs playing a little bit of that sound now you know so it's definitely uh come back i mean i think <laughs> beatport two weeks ago changed i think they had a progressive house section which was mainly edm and now that's in big room or whatever and okay. that's back to being proper inverted commas progressive house so in terms of you know who, who would be a flag bearer for that sound now i don't know it's i don't know whether that necessarily is one but it went through a period where it was quite derided in in the media and things like that just because it became so big you know as uh, particularly in the uk and you know some of the records maybe ended up being a little bit too long like 12 hour 12 minute opuses and it got a little bit self-indulgent and a bit yeah a bit spinal tap, but it, it, it reined itself back in. And yeah, I mean, I prefer to use the word, you know, melodic or a melody and stuff, you know. Uh, so it's been said in the past, that even by yourself earlier, maybe that uh, GU helped popularise the idea of the superstar DJ. Yeah. I think for me personally, seeing or remembering back to some of the covers, the DJs almost took on this like mythical you know quality for, yeah. for for whatever reason i was wondering if that was something that you've kind of thought much about or considered or you'd kind of considered it at the time yeah i mean absolutely i've always tried to make striking covers you know things that sit on the shelf and catch people's eyes when they walk past or back in the day we used to do a lot of fly postering with diabolical liberties and we had these huge street posters and stuff and i love the fact that people would see those we you know we saw them on episodes of eastenders and stuff like that and it's great you know you create these yeah yeah, it's 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 weird when you see it used in mainstream culture like that but yeah obviously you know as an ex-photographer i'm very into art and photography and design and things like that so yeah it's a very much a conscious step that we created covers that were i catching and and symbolic and just something that's a, a little bit more creative than what was being done at the time you know and um the photographer's name is dean belcher, dean belcher yeah, yeah yeah do you want to tell us about his work yeah i mean we met dean i think i rang ben turner at music mag at the time and you know we'd been working with a couple of different photographers in the first early albums and i just wanted to find a consistently good photographer to work with the first album he did for me was the sydney album with john digwood gu6 and we actually used a photographer in Australia to do the street stuff with John. But then the cover we shot in his studio here in London. 
And uh, he was recommended to us. And then the first trip he came on was the New York trip with Paul Oakenfold, which was classic trip that was the first kind of proper location spent two three days with the dj photographing him in a city kind of thing and we've worked together ever since i mean there's been a couple of albums he wasn't able to do because he wasn't available i think shram he didn't do and one of the nick warrens he didn't do but other than that he's pretty much been the gu photographer and he you know in terms of visually he definitely he found that style and we just used his images in the booklet and it grew from that you know, I mean, I knew how I wanted it, but he w- he would go out and find he'd disappear all day in the streets and just come back with these stunning images of like small little details. I think you'd you'd walk with him and I wouldn't even see it, but he would. And you get this back then; it was prints. You get the the contact sheets back, and there'd be all these and same in the club. You'd be like, where was that girl in the club? Where was she? Where where was he? Where was that couple? You you know, I'd spend the night in the club running around, didn't see them. He captured them. It's like an eagle. He's just looking all the time for these images. So he gave us that, I mean, the DJs gave us the audio and he gave us the images and we kind of put everything together in, into this format and just reflected. We're fortunate enough to have worked with people at that level of talent, you know. He could argue that the images went on to influence tens of thousands of uh, press shots in the it, future, it, you know, yeah, the, 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 model, the model for that. So it sounded like these trips were uh, quite big events in that you went out there, you know, it was full photography you had the sleeve notes which kind of took on this like slightly wild at times zany like narrative form you know it sounded like quite rock and roll yeah it was in places you so you were bringing a journalist with you on all occasions yeah Yeah. where where we could dom came as on as many trips as he could again there was a couple he couldn't come to hong kong with john because of personal reasons and a few other trips he hasn't been able to make but generally he would be there and we always found that the sleeve notes were better when he was there because again we would get in early like three four days before the show he would do a load of research before he got there got in touch with local movers and shakers and just go and hang out with people and interview them and just get get under the skin of the city a little bit, you know, a lot more than you would do sitting in the lounge of your hotel room or in the back room of the club at the event. You know, actually spend those four or five days in the city, you know, interviewing people. And Dean would photograph some of these characters as well that we met and just try and get, just capture the, as, as good as we could in that short time period, the, the essence of a city, as well as, you know, the party itself. So. No, it definitely sounded like you were getting stuck in. Yeah, we were, yeah. <laughs> Do you have any really memorable ones? Any you reflect on as being like, uh, you know, that was... I mean, in terms, in terms of parties, I think definitely when we did Sasha's album at Space, it was June 99, we did two parties, the opening and the closing. And Sasha wanted to do a beat and I was like, no way. And this is 1999. I'm like, it's too cheesy, too mainstream. Because everywhere else we've done was like ultra cool. You know, a beat can be ultra cool even now or it can be really cheesy. And like, you know, my image of a I mean, I first went there in 87 and 88 and, you know, I went to various clubs and stuff. So I knew Abitha well. But anyway, I got persuaded, got talked into doing it. And it was brilliant, you know, it was just an amazing thing. We took uh, Channel 4 film crew with us and they captured it all. And we, again, we interviewed, we grabbed all these characters at space early, took them on the roof, photographed them, interviewed them, put documented the whole thing. And it felt like a complete trip to me. Back then, 99, at space, which sadly is now just closed, it was just a complete freak show. Odd people, just freak club freaks. But everybody there would have a really, really good time, and everybody dancing, everybody just letting, cutting loose and having a good time. So capturing each of these, indi- or as many of those individuals as we could and putting it together in that format, 
it was very very memorable but I mean they've all they've, all the parties have been amazing you know I mean hey, I wanted to ask actually if you'd had any bad ones because I any disasters no I mean the reason I was asking was because you're going to these places that don't necessarily have or ostensibly don't have um, established dance scenes so I was just wondering if like uh, you know you turn up and it just falls flat for whatever reason like local market forces but it's, saying no it's never happened when we went to Prague I remember uh, they ran out of bread in Prague I remember that this is back in <laughs> 1997 I'm pescatarian I don't eat meat so we went to this meat re- restaurant I remember and uh, it was really it was just after you know they got independence and things the promoter didn't know I didn't eat meat and went to this meat restaurant and I thought oh well at least I can have some bread and whatever and did and the, the guy I remember the waiter came over and he translated and he said there is no more bread in Prague so there was incidents like that which are just you know hilarious but in terms of all the parties we never we never had a cancelled party we never had anything on that level really go wrong we've been very lucky in Buenos Aires with Dave Seaman it rained all the time so all the photographs we had to shoot indoors or at night but you just adapt you know if you've if you've got to get something done you've got two three days you will find a way, way to make it work you know one of the interesting things to me looking back is the uh, volume of side series you did or, or yeah. spin-off series. You had series to, that were dedicated to uh, single DJs. Like Lights Out, Steve Lawler and things. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, which is which is kind of nuts to, to look back on. But yeah. did all of them do well? I mean, it, to me, this points to like a a golden age if you like of the of the mixed compilation series and, you know, as evinced by the fact that you did so many. Were they all kind of really successful I mean everything did I mean we've again we've always been fortunate that a lot of the people that buy a city series that back then might have sold 70 or 100,000 you know they would support something like Electric Calm which was a chill out album that we put together ourselves you know still back then was still done 10 or 15,000 you know and been relevant you know Steve's somebody we supported from his new breed right away through to Lights Out and he you know he had this vision for Lights Out and we did you know two or three big world tours with him and it all made sense you know and it still it still does make sense for us I mean we're not doing the volume that we used to do but I think because people like to collect our albums as I said before you know there's there's people out there who've got everything and they have them all in a special rack and stuff because people collect physical you know, I think if we were just a, a mainly digital label like some some labels that are around now, you probably struggle now. But because people love to collect our albums, we've always got that physical element. And those, like I said, the, there aren't hundreds of thousands of people like that around that are still buying it, but it's still enough for it to make sense for us, you know. Do you remember what the most you ever sold on one was? Um, Oakenfold, New York, and Sasha Beetha both did really, really well. There was over 100,000, whether it was 150 or 130, I can't remember. But, I mean, we sold quite a lot in America. America's, we focused on America, I think, back in uh, 98. Because, again, you know, going back to how we started, when, you know, when Ministry and all these guys were releasing... UK just seemed a very com- a competitive market for me. And sure. we're a UK-based company. We're always going to sell records here. But my focus is always internationally. We went to Medium Asia in, I think, 97 in Hong Kong, set up the Australian distribution deal, American distribution deal. I was always focused. I always thought the world was such a big place, you know, if we can sell 1,000 here, 2,000 there, you know, and sell whatever we do back home. Of course, everywhere that we went and we did a party and we did an album, we pick up a fan base, 1,000, 2,000 fans everywhere you go and then you know you start doing 20 30 albums all over the world and then you you grow your global fan base and it's still like that now i mean we have an online store we're global and we see the orders coming in and it's everywhere from mexico to new zealand to hong kong taiwan everywhere you know we do have that global 
footprint, as most digital-based dance brands do, but I guess through the years, it's just uh, it's just built and built and built for us, you know? How badly hit were you when uh, the physical market started to fall away? I'm, I'm massively. I mean, okay. it's just a huge shock for Wait, everybody. Uh, when did you start to see the, uh, you know, the early rumblings? I think it was two, probably 2001. We, you know, really we really got spanked. Yeah, yeah, 2001, 2002. Uh, we did some restructuring at the beginning of 2003 and just moved on from it. But yeah, we saw, I mean, sales volume halved in like two years, I would say, for physical. Uh, I mean, I was always a big supporter when digital started with the first, one of the first uh, electronic labels on iTunes were Beatport's biggest label the first year they started. We always, always saw the relevance of digital, even though our our products are very, our releases are very physical, but, you know, I always saw the reach in that you could probably sell records in the Philippines or Mexico or places you might not have distribution deals. I could I sort of saw digital as something that plugged those gaps. And obviously America being so vast, even though we've always had good distribution there, so vast, you know, if you've got somebody that, you know, they haven't got it in stock at Best Buy in their city, they could get it digitally from iTunes and made relevance. But yeah, we were hugely affected. Uh, just every, it just affected every, you know, distributors were going bankrupt left, right and centre. We had quite a lot went down, you know, on us, unfortunately. It was just, it was just one of those times. I mean, it's sure. it just Sure. I mean, it, um, had the podcast uh, thing taken off at that point? Did you, did you start to see every which DJ? No, uh, not so much. It wasn't even that. It was just, it was illegal downloading. It was everything that was happening, you know. It was just like, yeah. shit, we just yeah. get music for free. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, yeah. If, you, if you're in the States, say at the time, you pay 20 bucks for one of our albums in Virgin Megastore in Union Square, or your mate's got LimeWire or whatever, and you can get it for nothing. It's like people have different entry points to music, don't they? You know, you have people that freeload and will never pay for music but might go to a gig. People that might buy an album at 10 quid or people that might buy one of our box sets, you know, or limit or vinyl release or whatever. There's different entry points, you know. And at that point, I think the industry was guilty of not having enough entry points for people. It's like CDs that, it's like 15 quid, that's it. That's your one was option. That, was that about the average price? That you, yeah, I think so. It was about 15. HMV back then was probably about 15 pounds. Maybe, yeah, 15, 14, 14. How much are they these days? About the same. Uh, 10 quid. Is it 10 quid? Yeah. Really? HMV, now, yeah, they have this price point thing. It's 10 quid. Amazon, the same 10 quid, which I think's fair. Yeah, 10, it, 10 it feels comfortable feels to me. Right, it feels say. all right. You know, I mean, it's shut our margins but it's like I think it's a comfortable price point and it works you know obviously HMV again themselves they went through a restructuring in the last couple of years and got to close a lot of stores but they're making it work they're back to profitability and they're like that's the point price we need to sell stuff at it's 10 quid and it works so mm. so uh, thinking about uh, you professionally over the over the next decade um, it was obviously publicised that you uh, recently were back in control of the label and we were talking a little bit before we started recording about, uh, you know, the various forms that your involvement with the label has uh, taken. Do you want to talk us through uh, what that looked like? In, in terms of, um, you know, uh, leaving GU, coming back, like, you know, the various projects you were working on during the, the 2000s? Yeah, I mean, uh, leading up to 2007, I mean, uh, Ministry Round approached me in 2007 and they offered to come in a partnership with the label. And at that point, to be honest, because when we first started out, there was two of us, James and I, and then 2003, when we restructured, I'd, I started running the label myself. So from 2003 to 2007, you know, we'd released a lot of big records. I mean, we had a Billboard number one with Sasha Involver, Billboard number one with uh, Deep Dish uh, Toronto, a lot of artist albums, the Uncle album, Never Never Land. You know, we're shooting videos with Ian Brown, Top 40 Hits, you know, doing all this kind of stuff. 
But at the end, sort of the middle of 2007, when Lohan got in touch from ministry, I was like, I thought at that point I'd have been running it for 11 years. Creatively and sort of business-wise, I thought I'd sort of stretched it and taken it as far as I could. Sure. The ministry bought Head Candy a long time before that, and I, they did a really good job building that business into all these areas like merchandising and radio shows and things like that. So when they approached me, you know, we sat down, we talked, we went backwards and forwards and thus, and it wasn't even, a, you know, the, they ended up buying 51% and taking control of the business. And it wasn't a money thing, you know, it was actually not that big a deal financially, but it was more about giving the label stability and a strong partner who would support the label and help it grow. And the first couple of years at ministry were brilliant, you know, they're very, very supportive, but I don't think they, they saw the high volume of sales, you know, both with the records and, you know, outside and the, the various areas like tours and things that they were probably expecting. Because even though Global has a, a large, you know, sort of press footprint and a reputation, it is actually quite a niche brand. It's a DJ brand, you know, and yeah, DJ culture's everywhere and, you know, they're selling loads of turntables and software and headphones and all this kind of stuff. And Global is still quite a niche brand. You know, there is an upper limit to how many records even 10 years ago we would sell. You know, we weren't selling the mail. You know, back then, a Ministry of Sound annual would sell 700,000, maybe even a million copies. And that's in the UK. And, like, our biggest selling record in the UK at the time might have sold 50,000. Yeah. So that shows you the difference in scale between yeah. the two. I suppose it doesn't have that kind of lifestyle quality that a brand like uh, Head Candy yeah, or like Ministry yeah. would have. You know, yeah. someone's in the supermarket like, oh, I fancy a dance music yeah. compilation. You know, they might might go for that. So um, you were talking about diversification. Um, I mean, how uh, different did the model look over the years? You uh, releasing original music. Uh, you were talking about like top 10 records and this kind of thing. It sounds like the brand really like took on a, quite different identity eventually we've always supported artists so you know the artist label something that's very very important to me GU music we've we've just started again signing a lot of stuff you know we signed this guy Luke Santos uh, who's just had an EP out Arturo Hevier from Chile you know a lot of stuff coming up from Squire and people like that a lot of and Annie and just her and all and Denny and all these guys so it's very very important to me that we support that and it's creatively it's you know something I personally enjoy as well getting remixes in and going over the stuff I mean mixes are things that are always defined global and it's always what this touchstone it's always what people will most people experience global as but for me creatively it's nice for us to you know do these additional projects you know whether it's an after hours album an eclectic album that we've put together ourselves and you know take a year you know finding these weird and wonderful records or an electric calm record or you know like the artist label it's just important that we're just we're not just releasing dj mixes even though that's what defines us you know do you plan to include uh new different people in the main series in that because there was a four-year gap right between so about three years before yeah, before was, we signed solomon yeah yeah it came back with solomon why'd you go for solomon because he's an amazing dj and he puts amazing mixes together yeah, it was in a nutshell, kind of, kind of that pretty simple, much yeah. that, yeah. I mean, yeah, he's an amazing producer and he raised a remix. I mean, back then his profile wasn't as, he was big, but he wasn't as big as he is now, you know, with his Ibiza residency and things like that. And I just, you listen to so many mixes that he'd done, you know, radio mixes. He'd done one mix, uh, Robert Johnson mix album and one other as well. The other thing we do when we're picking artists is we don't necessarily work with artists that churn out millions of albums. 
You know, some people we work with have, have released a fair few over the years, maybe 10, 12. But a lot of people like your Danny Tanaglia, your Solomons, you find they probably only have done two or three mix albums in their entire career. How many so Tanaglia done? It's probably like not that many. Three, yeah, yeah, like three. Yeah, small yeah. handful. So yeah. when they come out, they're really special. So that's, that's another thing we do. But in terms of, yeah... Bringing new people to the main series, absolutely, you know. And I've got to the point now with the City series is that I won't or I won't release a City series album until I can work with somebody that I really believe in, which has always been the case. So and we did James's record last year because he came to me with this great concept for Uncle Sounds, and he did all those exclusive remixes and brought everybody in like Elliot Power and Esker and all these kind of stuffs. Moving forward, you know, the next people that we work with on the City series will be new people to the label invariably there'd be relatively established artists in that I mean somebody that's been around for the last five years or ten years or something but yeah I'm I'm negotiating one person at the minute it would be absolutely amazing are there any places that you'd uh, like to go I know you said that the DJs maybe like play a, a bigger hand in that but yeah is there any on your personal hit list there's, I don't know. There's places like St. Petersburg that I'm quite interested to go to. More on like I've never been there, so it would be quite nice to go. I mean, there's there's always new places starting up. I mean, we've pretty much been everywhere across the globe. But I mean, there's still tons and tons of cities that we haven't done albums from, you know. But culturally, I think we've been practically everywhere, I think, except India. Yeah. Um, wanted to get your thoughts on the uh, mixed CD market in 2016. If I was to sit here and uh, tell you that I was planning to release um, a new mixed CD series, uh, what would you what would you say to me? Would you warn me against it or? Um, it just it depends, you know. If you can work with in terms of licensing, if you can work with cool labels, like we have a we have a list at Global of labels that are really really cool to work with. Now, when we're doing a city album, uh, DJ picks the tracks, and we pretty much have to work with the people that they want. I mean, if, if we can't clear a track, we can't clear it, but we do our absolute best to clear the, clear the music. But there are definitely a ton of labels out there that are really, really cool. So, you know, when we do our own albums, whether it's an After Hours or whatever, we have the cool list. You know, there's labels like Compact in Germany who are amazing to work with. Phenomenal music, really efficient, super quick, fair, quick, dead easy to work with. And then other labels that are just really difficult and they just demand stratospheric amounts of money for the music. Does it usually come down to money when there is an obstacle or, or is yeah, it like communications or? Sometimes, well, it's either one or two things. Either they don't want a license, which is fine. If they say don't want a license, fine. You know, we'll let whoever know and what have you. And then yes. sometimes it's, well, if we are going to license, then we want a thousand pounds, which is just an impractical amount for an album now. So my advice to you, if you were saying, you know, I want to do this, if, if the series is something, depending on whether it was involved a DJ or you were doing it yourself, if you're working would say a DJ, that DJ would probably have to work with you to get the help from the labels to allow you to license the music to make it commercially viable. Yeah. You know, and that's that's normally not a problem because most labels want to be in with certain DJs or they're, they're probably associated. Well, and quite often the the friends, you know, it's like I'm think I'm doing this album for this label, you know, do, 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 can we agree this and you know, keep the terms reasonable so every everybody can, you know, so the project can happen basically. It's interesting that licensing plays a kind of subtle but nonetheless quite profound role in the overall product it does it does because it comes down to using other people's music other people's repertoire and some people want to give you it and some people don't you know and like i said you know back in the day you you might you might have paid a thousand pounds you know and if you pay an independent label a thousand pounds to use a track 
they were killing themselves to give you the music. Whereas now, you know, you might be advancing 50 pounds or 100 pounds. You know, I know a lot of compilation labels don't even give any advance, you know, and they just uh, do the twice yearly statements and send them out. I mean, we don't work that way. We tend to always try and give people something. You can't keep releasing records that are losing money because you'll go out of business. So there is there are limits to how much money you can forward for licensing. But most honestly, most labels get it, you know, and they, they appreciate the hundred pounds or the fifty pounds yeah, or two hundred pounds. I don't know what yeah, you're about. Yeah. Finally, I'm gonna ask you to pick your favorite GU release. Uh, and you have to answer. All right, okay. I can pick my favorite GU release, but it would be a combination of two. I'm going to allow that. That's absolutely okay. fine. Um, so I would say Sasha, Sasha Abitha, disc one, and Danny Tanaglia, Athens, disc two. And why in both cases? Just classic albums full of beautiful music, beautifully compiled and mixed together. I mean, astonishingly done, you know, both of them were done live. Like Danny, I think he went into Tunnel at the time when he came back from Athens and mixed it live and you can hear it's been mixed live but it's beautifully mixed and beautifully programmed and and the Sasha records it's part memories from that party at space but also just absolutely stunning stunning record you know from a genius <laughs> <laughs>